Well, thank you to our scripture readers. That was so incredibly special. I heard a few comments after last week's message that many of you are probably looking forward to us jumping in to the Beatitudes this morning, last week being the overview. So if you missed the overview, I want to encourage you to go back to last week's message and watch it through. It really hopefully shaped a bit of the Beatitudes better for us in light of the Beatitudes being part of the Sermon on the Mount and then Jesus as a teacher. And so with that, why don't we take a moment before we jump into this first Beatitude to quiet ourselves, to still our spirits, and to invite Jesus to do a work in our hearts this morning as we listen to him and then are going to be invited to respond to this morning's teaching. And so Jesus, we do invite you this morning to do a work in our heart and in our spirit. As we come to understand this morning what you were teaching as it relates to blessed are the pure, poor in spirit. God, would you give us insight into our own lives and would you challenge us and lead us and might we look to you completely coming out of this morning's teaching. In your son's name, we pray. Amen. Well, after last week's message, maybe you've continued to ask yourself the question, what is my vision of the good life? I heard from a couple of us that that was really challenging, that it it forced some introspection as we considered what is our vision of the good life. I think many of us would agree that if we look at the vision of the good life in our culture, many people would suggest that a vision of the good life is a successful life. However you might measure that as far as success. But for what many people, success means is that you've accomplished something and oftentimes in a way that doesn't give a lot of credit to other people, but is built upon self-reliance or self-dependence. Like somebody did it. Someone made a, a way for themselves in life and they are now successful because of the work that they have done. Maybe on the surface, it doesn't look that obvious to you, but would you consider with me for a moment what some of the motivations are for the things that you do? Is it for recognition? Do you have a desire to try to better yourself so others will take notice of you? You know, if you look at our culture, we're fascinated with stories of people that are in some ways we perceive as being self-made. While I was on sabbatical, I read a a biography on Michael Jordan, which was pointing a lot to the the reality of him and his self-betterment and self-dependence of his stardom and his celebrity and his skill and his talent. You can look at biographies of people like Steve Jobs or even more recently in the tech industry of Elon Musk. And we look at these people and we celebrate these people and we see them as as people that we want to become like because they, for us, represent a vision of the good life. Look at their great lives. Every Friday night, um, our family has pizza and a movie night. 
So the, the pizza generally stays the same. We, we order the same large pizza, three toppings from Victoria's Pizza here in Guelph. And on Friday night, we then take a turn, each of us in our family, picking a different movie. And something that I've been noticing about kids' movies recently is that most kids' movies and most children's movies are about young characters who find themselves in some way at odds with their culture or they have some uniqueness within them. And the moral of the movie and the moral of the story is often that, that these characters try to be who they want to be and then to explore their inner self and then release it on the world. Kind of this message of self-dependence, this self-uniqueness, and then release it upon the world. Some examples of movies we've seen are Brave, Moana, Frozen, Coco, or last week's movie that we watched, which was Beauty and the Beast, of Belle, the opening song being about the oddity of Belle, yet the oddity of Belle is what leads her to fall in love with the beast and enjoy the library of his castle. I think much of this prominence around self-dependence, reliance, the, the expression, the individuality that is celebrated of self-made people is then seen in, the, seen in the prominence that we have in our culture of self-help books. I, I simply searched self-help books in Amazon this week and over 200,000 results. I didn't look at all 200,000 results, but the indicator at the top was that there were over 200,000 results of books geared to help somebody better themselves. Now, with this cultural fascination and this prominence of the self-made or self-dependent person, it is no wonder then that you and I can fall into this temptation when it comes to the Beatitudes if the goal or the idol of the good life in our culture is to be able to say, I can do it, then the opposite of that is going to be, I can't do it. I don't have what it takes. And so the Beatitudes challenges us because it's not going to be about mustering up ability and effort to become or accomplish each Beatitude because that's simply moralism and it isn't Jesus' teaching. This quote from Stanley Hauerwas, I think, is helpful to this point. Too often, those characteristics of the Beatitudes are turned into ideals we strive to attain. As, the ide as ideals, they become formulas for power rather than descriptions of the kind of people characteristic of the new age brought on by Christ. Thus, Jesus does not tell us that we should try to be poor in spirit or meek or peacemakers— he simply says that many who are called into the kingdom will find themselves so constituted. To put the temptation, it's another way. It's like playing a Mario game where you have different levels where, okay, I've got number one down. I'm moving on to level two. Or Donkey Kong, in which you've done level one, you're moving on to level two. And that's not the heart of the Beatitudes. The Sermon on the Mount, if anything, is like staring, and this includes the Beatitudes, is like staring at a mountain, knowing that you must scale it, but knowing that there is no way that you're going to be able to do it on your own strength. And if you're trying to do it alone, it is actual proof that you're missing the point all together. And so the Beatitudes, as we're to come to understand them, and will come to understand them, Describe the character of those who are in a relationship with God through Jesus Christ, dependent on the Spirit. They are a radical revisioning of the people of God. 
And the Beatitudes were and are pre- intended to be provocative and offensive. As I said last week, if we, if we read them and they don't become provocative or offensive, we don't read them in that way. It's because we are softening them. We're trying to change their message. And so my hope is that the, the words and the intention of what Jesus meant by these teachings would truly come to our understanding. The Beatitudes, as I also described are intended to describe Jesus' vision of the good life, the happy or the blessed life, and therefore, it may also be helpful for us as we begin today with the first beatitude to remind ourselves what blessed means because we have such an understanding of it in our culture that is not the intention of what Jesus says when he says blessed. This again is a quote from last week, but I think it's one of the stronger quotes that gets to the heart of blessed, and it's from Scott McKnight. He says, a blessed person is someone who, because of a heart for God, is promised and enjoys God's favor regardless of that person's status or countercultural condition. In our culture, a person's happiness is often dependent on their condition. And that's not what blessed is in the scriptures, that being blessed, being happy according to the scriptures transcends our circumstance, transcends our condition. And so with that, I hope you're ready. Let's jump into the first beatitude and the first characteristic of those Jesus describes as the truly blessed ones. And so here's what he says. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, there are two questions that I want to answer this morning as it relates to this beatitude. The first question is this, who are the poor in spirit? And then the second question is, what is promised to the poor in spirit? So let's take each question in turn. The first question, who are the poor in spirit? Now, the Greek word here used for poor is pachos, and it's a verb meaning to shrink, to cower, or to cringe, as beggars in Jesus' culture often did. Now, classical Greek reserves the term for a person who is completely destitute, someone who may have been involuntarily oppressed, someone who may have been despised by the rich, and who would be crouching in a corner begging. You can imagine a person, so image this in your mind with a person that would be holding out their hand for alms or for giving, and with the other hand covering their face so they wouldn't be recognized. This is the imagery that Jesus is wanting to incite for us with this use of this term poor. Therefore, The poor that Jesus describes are those completely dependent upon others for sustenance as they have absolutely no means for their own self-support. Now in the Gospel of Luke in chapter 6, there is another list of Beatitudes and there's some mirroring with the list in Matthew. And in Luke's Beatitudes, he simply says, blessed are the poor. He doesn't add in spirit. Now, as you can imagine, there has become a great debate over what Jesus has intended. 
But where I've come to understand and to land is that we're intended to see that Matthew is giving an explicit clarification of what Jesus meant by poor by adding in spirit to it, speaking primarily about spiritual poverty corresponding to the material poverty of pachos or poor that he used. Now, with that in mind, it is worth noting that while Jesus, as I will suggest here, is primarily speaking about spiritual poverty, Jesus throughout his life and earthly ministry on the earth showed a special love, affection, and care for those that were living within material poverty, especially those who were there involuntarily or were being oppressed. So, while Jesus made that not intention is not the point of this particular beatitude, we cannot avoid the fact that Jesus, as I've said, shows a particular love, care, and affection for the materially poor. And yet, Jesus cannot be speaking solely about material poverty here for a, a few reasons. And I'm giving you the background here so that you come to understand, again, the truth of this beatitude. And the first reason I'd suggest is that Jesus does not teach in his ministry that material poverty was the sole path to spiritual maturity and that poverty does not necessarily guarantee spirituality. Secondly, the same love of money, and this is important to understand, the same love of, of money and reliance upon riches that plague the wealthy can also plague the poor. Now, I think we'd understand that while distractions and temptations for the wealthy may be different for the wealthy than for the poor, and therefore create an advantage for the poor as it relates to those temptations, both groups can be guilty of a love or a dependence upon riches and wealth. And then thirdly, later in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus encourages and commands those with wealth to give to the poor. And so Jesus cannot be solely here talking about material poverty. And so what he's getting at is a spiritual poverty, a spiritual neediness. So in summary, if we're to understand that material poverty description of pachos as to shrink, cower, or cringe to be applied to the spirit, what we have is a person who has no means of substance and no ability to support themselves at the level of spirit. Which raises the question for us of what is spirit? Well, I appreciate the suggestion of Dallas Willard in his book, Renovation of the Spirit, where he gives a detailed breakdown of the difference between heart, spirit, will, mind, in which he writes this about the spirit. He says, the spirit of man is the central core of the non-physical part of man, the heart of the human system, the core of its being the core of its being. So with that in mind, and also with the detailed description that I gave about what is intended by poor, let's answer the question now, who are the poor in spirit? Here's the answer. The poor in spirit are those who recognize that they are absolutely helpless without God's help. 
They are those who understand the true nature of their poverty apart from God, who recognize that they are spiritually bankrupt, lost, helpless, and hopeless without him, and therefore require him to give them what they are incapable of. They do not have within themselves anything to muster. They need God's help. Poverty of spirit at the core of a person's being. Well, a question we could then ask ourselves about poverty of spirit or the poor in spirit, or are there other texts in the scriptures that back up the idea of God blessing or having a special love and care for those with poverty of spirit? And the answer is absolutely yes. Here are a few for us. First from Psalm 38, verse 18. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. Psalm 51, verse 17. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. Oh God, you will not despise. Now, in case you're not familiar with the term contrite and what it means, it's feeling or expressing remorse at the recognition that somebody has done wrong that they've not measured up, they haven't done what they should have done and that they've done wrong. Let's then go to Isaiah, Isaiah 57 verse 15. For thus says the high and lofty one who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy, I dwell in the high and holy place and also with those who are contrite and humble in spirit to revive the spirit of the humble and to revive the spirit of the contrite. Or how about Isaiah 66, verse 2, B, but this is the one to whom I will look. This is God speaking to the humble and contrite in spirit who trembles at my word. Therefore, what we see here is that the scriptures also testify to God's special love and care for those who are poor in spirit, who exhibit a poverty of spirit. Well, what are some biblical examples? Are there, are there people within the scriptures that exhibit this character of poverty of spirit? And again, the question is absolutely. Let's first look at Moses in Exodus 3, verses 6 and 11. Look at how he responds to God's presence and God's call. We read, And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. He then says, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? Who am I? I am nothing. I can't do this, is what he's expressing. Or how about Gideon as response to his call? Judges 6 verse 15. Please, Lord, how can I save Israel? Behold, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my father's house. Notice what he's simply recognizing, the truth of the matter of his context and situation. I am regarded as one among the least. I bring no strength to the table. I bring nothing. Why me? Or how about Isaiah in Isaiah 6 verse 5? Isaiah says, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Again, a recognition that he is nothing, nothing without God. 
Or how about the New Testament? That Let's look at Simon Peter, Peter himself in Luke 5 verse 8 responding to a work of Jesus. But when Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees saying, depart from me for I am a sinful man, O Lord. There's a recognition of his poverty, a recognition of his sin is a contrite heart. Or how about the Apostle Paul, Romans 7 verse 18. He says, for I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. I am nothing if I do not have the strength of God, is what he's saying. Or how about 1 Timothy 1 verse 15 from Paul. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And look what he says, of whom I am the foremost. Look at his humility, his poverty of spirit recognizing his sin and his depravity apart from God. Then this next one might come as a surprise. And the next example is Jesus. Look what Jesus says in John 5 verse 30. I can do nothing on my own. He says, as I hear, I judge and my judgment is just because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Even Jesus expresses here a dependence upon the Father. I can do nothing on my own. A dependence upon the Father. So if this is what the poor in spirit are, recognizing a helplessness without God's help, what is the antithesis to the poor in spirit? And why is this beatitude so provocative? Well, the antithesis to the poor in spirit is to claim that I can do it on my own. It's the self-dependent, it's the self-assured, and it's the proud. You might find it interesting as we look at history that Augustine said in his confessions that pride was the great barrier to his receiving of the gospel to admitting his helplessness apart from God. We can even look at the historical Martin Luther who could not have received the gospel until he realizes that his sacrifices and his spiritual rituals and routines counted as nothing before God. And as I said before, we live in a culture seeped and soaked in an attitude of pride and self-dependence. And tragically, this view has also made its way into the church around successism in churches, around trying to stand on our own two feet, around comparison with other churches and believers. And it seeped and soaked itself. Yet who does Jesus call the blessed ones? He said, blessed are the poor in spirit, those with poverty of spirit. Martin Lloyd-Jones, in a sermon on this beatitude in 1954, says the following, and he helps us get at the heart of the provocativeness and the reality of what Jesus is meaning by poverty of spirit. It's a lengthy quote, but I think you'll appreciate it. He said this, it, poverty of spirit, means a complete absence of pride a complete absence of self-assurance and of self-reliance. 
It means a consciousness that we are nothing in the presence of God. It is nothing then that we can produce. It is nothing that we can do in ourselves. It is just this tremendous awareness of our utter nothingness as we come face to face with God. That is to be poor in spirit. Let it put, put it as strongly as I can, and I do so on the basis of teaching of the Bible. It means this, that if we are truly Christians, we shall not rely upon our natural birth. We shall not rely upon the fact that we, are, that we belong to certain families. We shall not boast that we belong to certain nations or nationalities. We shall not build upon our na- natural we shall not build upon our natural temperament. We shall not believe in and rely upon our natural position in life or any powers that may have been given to us. We shall not rely upon money or on any wealth that we may have. The thing about which we shall boast will not be the education we have received or the particular school or college to which we have been. No, all of that is what Paul came to regard as dung and a hindrance to this greater thing because it tended to master and control him. We shall not rely upon any gifts like that of natural personality or intelligence or general or special ability. We shall not rely upon our own morality and conduct and good behavior. We shall not bank to the slightest extent on the life we have lived or are trying to live. No, we shall regard all that as Paul regarded it. That is poverty of spirit. There must be a complete deliverance from an absence of all of that. I say it again. It is to feel that we are nothing and that we have nothing and that we look to God in utter submission to him and in utter dependence upon him and his grace and his mercy. Provocative. Offensive. And don't mistake the fact that there is a significance in this beatitude coming first. Because ultimately, it's the key to every single beatitude. And it's the foundation by which someone becomes a follower of Jesus. It's the heart of repentance, of turning from self and turning to God when we recognize our complete and utter helplessness apart from his help. That is what is meant by poverty of spirit, the poor in spirit. With that, what about the second question? And this one is a little bit shorter. What is promised to the poor in spirit? If we now know what the poor in spirit means, what is promised to them? And this is what we read from Jesus' words, red letter. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The question, what is the kingdom of heaven? And the answer to that is that it's the sphere or realm of Jesus' rule and his reign. It's the sphere and realm of Jesus' rule and his reign. And it's maybe helpful for us to understand this, these, these realms, in, in this realm in three different parts. Three different parts. The first is the kingdom of heaven in the past or the kingdom of God in the past. 
This is wherever Jesus was present and exercising authority during his ministry on earth. Wherever Jesus was present and exercising authority, there was the kingdom of heaven, where his rule and reign was being exercised. Secondly, though, the kingdom of heaven is also with us in the present, wherever the rule of Jesus is manifest through his followers, through his disciples. As Jesus says in the Great Commission, surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. And so as followers of Jesus live out his teachings as they follow him, there Jesus is and there his rule and his reign is being extended. I think that there's two aspects to this present reality of the kingdom of heaven. The first is this objective reality of what I've just said, that because Christ dwells with us, that the kingdom of heaven is here in his rule and his reign. But then secondly, as Jesus is talking to the poverty of spirit or those with poor in spirit as their character, he's also saying that because of your participation as described as a person with this character, you are also participating in the kingdom of heaven and that those who will be part of the future kingdom of heaven will be those with poverty of spirit. There will be nobody in heaven forever, eternally, that does not have poverty of spirit. And so in this sense, heaven The kingdom of heaven is realized in the here and now because heaven will therefore be a continuation of my present experience and character. It's part of the motive of Jesus saying in the reality of being, having poverty of spirit now is that when it comes to heaven, this will simply be a continuation of the present reality that you are living in, recognizing your deep need and that you're nothing apart from the help of God But then the kingdom of heaven is also a future reality in in which it is yet to come. Because when Jesus returns, he's going to consummate his rule and his reign over the entirety of the cosmos, destroying all that which stands against his rule and against his reign. And this is why it's not only a promise in the present, but it's also a promise in the future to those that have poverty of spirit, who are poor in spirit. And so within this beatitude, there is an invitation and a blessing. The invitation is for those who come with broken hearts, do not leave with broken hearts. Those who come with poverty of spirit, do not leave with poverty of spirit. Because God wants us to recognize our poverty so that he can make us rich so that he can give us the help that we require, the help that we need. It's available to anyone that will admit their need and that they are helpless. The gospel says the good news of Jesus is for those who have reached the bottom, who cannot live without God's supernatural help and miraculous intervention for all such desperate persons, for all those whom the world would call failures, God's arms are wide open and he has made a way for you through Jesus Christ to be in relationship with him. We also recognize the paradox of this beatitude that the truly happy and the blessed are not those who have it all together but those who admit they have nothing at all. 
James 4 verse 10 says this, humble yourselves before God and he will exalt you. Humble yourselves before God and he will exalt you. As we think about responding to these two questions, who are the poor in spirit? What is promised to the poor in spirit? How do we respond to this beatitude? While we want to avoid formulas for beatitude successism or accomplishing one after the other, here is what I would suggest as some practical next steps, especially in light of the fact that humility in this verse of James 4, verse 10, is commanded. The first thing that I would invite us to do is to look at Jesus, to look at Christ. Because the more we look at him, the more helpless that we will feel ourselves and more in need of his help. For me, I have found a regular rhythm of praying the Lord's Prayer slowly with each stanza to be extremely helpful in this. For me to look at Christ, for me to meditate upon Christ. Secondly, I would encourage us to starve pride. If pride is the antithesis of the pop for, in order to be a people of character, of poverty, of spirit, I would, I would encourage us to starve pride by removing things in your life that promote it. For me, I'm no longer on Facebook. When I went on sabbatical back on August, the end of August, I removed myself off of Facebook. Because for me, I recognized that pride was, was, was being emboldened through my use of Facebook as it relates to looking at status updates, comparing myself with other people, wanting to feel better about myself or good about my place in the world. And so we can starve pride. But then thirdly, so we look at Christ, we starve pride, but then thirdly, I would encourage us to ask God to grow poverty of spirit and humility in us. David prays the same in Psalm 51, verse 10. He says, create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. If we are to be people of poverty of spirit, God, would you give us a spirit, a renewed and right spirit? And so maybe these are some helpful steps. But then here are some diagnostic questions for us to consider The first one is this, how do you see yourself in the presence of God? You know, I gave us some examples of how people responded, Moses, Gideon, how they responded to the presence of God. How do you see yourself in the presence of God? Is there a recognition of your helplessness, but then following that, a joy of the mercy of God over you and his love and care? Secondly, what are the things that you or I say or pray about or like to think about in regards to ourselves? What am I praying about and what am I consumed with? A question I challenged us with last week as well. And then thirdly, how does reliance upon others, inadequacy, and being dependent upon others make us feel or make you feel? Are you willing to admit that you don't have what it takes, that you can't do it, that you are helpless apart from God's help. 
It's here at the very beginning of the Beatitudes and the entire Sermon on the Mount that you and I learn that we do not have the spiritual resources to put the sermon's precepts into practice. And so what we must do is empty ourselves. And so may today be the start or the continuing of this process for you and for me. May we be people that pray to the end of self-emptying. Might I empty myself so that Christ and his spirit can fill me. Let's pray. Jesus, I thank you for these words as challenging and provocative as they are in the midst of our cultural moment. I pray that you would challenge us, that you would call us, but then that you would equip us as we look to you. And so, Jesus, would you give us the desire to look to you? May we not be overcome by our sin, we not be overcome by our shame, but may we look to you and experience your love as you bathe us in it. And Jesus, as we focus on intimacy with you, may poverty of spirit come to describe us as people. We don't want to ask this selfishly, but we ask that you would give us a clean, a clean heart and a right spirit within us individually, but then corporately as a community and as a church. We love you. In your son's name we pray. Amen.